Hey, Reality Family. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's uh, sermon audio. My name is John. I am one of the pastors at Reality and very grateful that you are joining us today, but also come with a bit of bad news, which is that we unfortunately did not get all of the sermon audio taped this week. So I'm just going to give you a quick introduction to what we're talking about and try to catch you up to pass you off to the live sermon audio so that you understand where we are. If you've been following all along with us this fall, we, you know that we're in a series in Genesis 2 and 3, and we wrapped this Sunday. And throughout this series, we spent a lot of time focusing on the various characters in the story. So we've looked at ourselves as humans and seen that we are royal priests who are invited to partner with each other and partner with God. We've looked at trees that take on many different characteristics, but importantly for this this part of the Bible and the rest of the Bible, the trees are places that are sacred spaces where people can meet with God and often do in the story, but they're also places of testing. They're places that reveal what's underneath. And then finally, we've looked at snakes and Leviathan, who in the ancient Near East are these chaos monsters who release uh, the forces of chaos into our world. So we spent some time looking at all of those different characters, but what we haven't really done is focused on the character of God. And so that's how what we wanted to do uh, as we end this series. Um, and uh, we, we started with the question of what might God be thinking or what might God be feeling uh, at this point in the story as we end Genesis 3? Or another way of phrasing the question is, if you were God, what might you be feeling based on this story? So here's a reminder of where we're at in the story. In Genesis 2, we have this uh, amazing place that God has created that's full of potential. We see at the end of the story that humans created to be one, different but one with one another. They're standing on top of this mountain, which is in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, a place that's close to God. So they're very close to God. They're in this garden that he's created. And there's this opportunity for the shalom, the blessing that that God has given them to flow down uh, into the rest of the world and water the desert. And then God just gives them one command. He says, you know, eat from all of the trees, but just don't eat from this one, the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil, because he wants them to trust him for wisdom. And he says, if you don't eat from this tree, you will die, die. Then Genesis three, the picture inverts and we see the snakes, the snake fail the test at the tree. And then the humans fail the the test by following the snake. And so there's these instant consequences that come. So the question, again, that we're asking ourselves is, what might God be feeling in this moment? What might God be feeling at that moment in the story? And we took some time, five to 10 minutes, to discuss this in small groups, and then people fed back answers uh, to us just live. And so some of the things that people said were that God was probably brokenhearted at this point in the story, that he's been rejected uh, as a God, and and many of us know how that feels, uh, to be rejected. Um... God also is probably mourning the loss of all the potential that was there in Genesis 2. And God is uh, possibly frustrated as well, that he has created this world. Um, And in Genesis 1, it paints a really interesting picture of that, that God is creating with the words of his mouth. Everything that he says comes into existence immediately. And God says one thing to these humans about what they're supposed to do and not do, and the humans don't obey. And so if if I was God, uh, I would be very, very frustrated. Now, the, the point of this exercise is not to put us in the place of God. 
Uh, that's not what we're trying to do, but rather to help us to ask the question and look at the story also from God's perspective, that he is a character in the story. And I think this is a really important practice for us, especially if we're people who wrestle with the question of the goodness of God and the presence of evil in the world or the presence of sin or suffering. I think this text and many others invite us to ask those types of questions. How can there be a good God if there is so much suffering in the world? So we are invited as humans to wrestle with those types of questions. But I find that if you're anything like me, we almost always approach those questions from just one direction, which is we ask it from from a a person-centric perspective. How does sin and darkness affect me as a person? And I rarely ever uh, do what the Bible is also inviting me to do, which is asking the question, how might this affect God? How might he, you know, in the context of Genesis 2 and 3, how might he experience rebellion and sin and deceit? And so this is a really important discipline for us. Um, And we took some time again to do it on Sunday morning uh, to remind ourselves that we are not at the center of the universe, but God is, and to focus on his character. So that's the first, we spent about the first 15 minutes doing that. And uh, now I'll pass you off to the live sermon audio where we ask the next question, which is what will God do? If this is how God feels, what do we see God doing in the passage? And so here's the next question that follows from this. We won't take time to discuss it, but it's, if, if this is how God feels, then what might God do? What might God do? And the, the text is setting us up for a very interesting, uh, two very interesting options. On one hand, the, the answer is really clear. What God should do, he's told them what he'll do. If you eat from the tree, you will die. You will die, die, in fact. And so it's, it's actually really clear what should happen. They should die. And we've seen the humans, they've chosen from the, the eat from the tree. The snake has chosen to become a tempter and not become a, a source of wisdom. And we've seen how these consequences in the last few weeks have just spooled out. They're terrible. The humans are pitted against one another. There's going to be consequences that reach out to us today. And so what do they deserve? They deserve to be punished. They deserve judgment. And some of us, our personalities trend in that direction, especially because it's not us on the chopping block, right? Where we're like, they should get what's coming to them. But on the other hand, if we think of God, and, and Steve said this, brokenhearted, This is a world that he's created that he loves. You know, Mitch, when he preached about this, he did a great job. He said the earth is a character in the story. This garden is a character. This place is a character. God loves it. And God loves these humans. That's why I took time to talk to you about how he creates in Genesis 2. It's this intimate picture. And he's just brokenhearted over these people. And so on the other hand, we might be thinking, oh, just mercy. Give them mercy. Please don't punish them. And especially if we were in that situation, and if we ever fail at the tree, that might be what we're asking for. God, give me mercy. And I think we add add a subset of that today in, in our world, which I don't know that they would have thought of back in the time of the Bible, which is like, God, why don't you just fix it? I don't know how you wave the magic wand up there, but just fix it. Get rid of this problem, kind of what you're saying. Just reset it. Maybe you could reset it for us so that we don't deal with these consequences. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Who is God? And, and this, in, this polarization introduces us to the 3,000-year-old conversation. Is God a God of justice, or is he a God of mercy? That's what this story is, one of the things it's setting up for us. And it's been debated over 3,000 years. And different people have emphasized different parts, and, and those of us here would emphasize, you know, we'd be on different ends of that spectrum. So what I want to do today is, in the time that we have left, is just walk through the second half of Genesis 3 once again to see what does God do? 
Because as I said at the beginning, we all have visions of who God is and what he should do. And what Genesis 1 to 3 is doing is to invite us to, to be magnetized to this true God that we see in the story. And so the hope that we ha- I have today as we finish this series is that we might actually meet God in this space where we understand a bit of how he might be doing emotionally and then we watch what he does, that we might see the character of God. So Genesis 3, once again, the reminder of what's happened. The humans have been created, this great world. The humans have failed. As soon as they fail, they, they hide and they cover themselves with fig leaves. And verse 8 says this, They heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the wind of the day, and the human and the woman hid themselves from before the face of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the gardens. And Yahweh Elohim called to the human. So here's the first thing we, we learn about Yahweh. That in the midst of failure, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of being brokenhearted, he moves towards the people. He doesn't move away. He moves towards them. He is present with them. And in fact, he calls out to them. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is actually a huge surprise because that is not what I do when I'm hurt. When I'm hurt, um, you can clarify this with my wife later. The first thing that I do is I move away. I move back. I put distance between myself and someone else. And I I don't think that's uh, abnormal in our society. We, We, you know, the term ghosting, right? As soon as we feel anything negative, what do we do? Back that truck up out of there. And I think that's like a lot of us. And so it's very important for us to see that this is not who God is. That's not what he does when he experiences rejection. Instead, he moves towards his people. And this is important for us not only because it's maybe the opposite of what many of us would do, but it also uh, points out a, a fundamental attribute of who God is and what he desires, which is so simple, but it's so easy for us to forget and miss. That this God, Yahweh Elohim, wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to be here. That's what this story has been telling us the whole time. Genesis 1 paints this picture of creation. And the last day, God, it says, he comes and rests. Which in the, in the story means that he comes and he lives in the temple that he's created to be with his people. That's what he wants. He wants to be here with us reigning and ruling and working through us. Genesis 2 is the same story. God, it's slightly different. God puts this sacred garden on a mountain, which is also temple imagery. But the idea, as I said, is that God can be close to us. As it says in this passage, that he can show up and he can go for walks with us. That's what he wants. That's the way the world should be. And the tragedy of sin is that now the presence of God, which we were made to dwell in, which we were made to, to be in, now becomes something that causes us to hide. And the voice of God, which is to call us out to come and walk with him, to be with him, now becomes something that might evoke uh, fear, fear, <clears throat> excuse me, fear or shame in us. That might be the emotions that we have. It puts us on the defensive instead of calling us in. But God has not changed. This is who he is. He is a God who continues to come, and he is a God who continues to call out to us, even amidst our failures. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it this way. This is not just God's response one time. It's not just God's response to these first humans. This is God's fundamental response to human failure, a pursuit of relationship and an invitation to come out of hiding. Maybe if you hear one thing today, that's, that's a word to you. When, when we fail, which we inevitably do, God calls to you and he just wants you to come out of hiding. He wants to pursue Relationship. So this is who Yahweh Elohim is. He's a God who comes. He's a God who pursues. He's a God who calls out to us. Verse 9, Yahweh Elohim. So he calls to the humans and he says to them, where are you? 
Now, our interpretation of this verse depends largely on how we hear God saying it, which, again, goes back to the emotions we think God has. If he's angry, he might be like, where are you, you know, Uh, which might be how I would respond uh, in a situation like this. And I think God would have every right to call the humans out like that. But I learned uh, something very interesting in researching this passage. So the Hebrew word here, uh, that's where are you, is the the Hebrew words ayeha, ayeha. Now, what does ayeha mean? Well, they're question words, so they can be translated something like where or how. Like, but they're not used in the way that we might use those words normally. Like, it's not like, where is the hot sauce? You know, a, a question I constantly ask my wife. Where did you put the hot sauce? I really want to know where it is. Or, for example, how does a furnace work? Very important question. But that's not how these words are used. <clears throat> the Net Bible notes say this, Ayeha is an exclamation. It's an exclamation. So it's like this. If we're watching a basketball game and someone hit a crazy shot to win the game, we might say, like, how did that happen? We, we don't actually mean how did it happen. We just watched it happen. We're exclaiming like that. Or if you said to me, I went to t- watch Taylor Swift in New York last night, I'd be like, where did you go? I know where you went. You just told me you went to New York. But I'm exclaiming it along with you. So ayeha is an exclamation but it's different than the ones I just used because ayeha is an exclamation of lament or desperation. An exclamation of lament or desperation. So in, in Isaiah 1, the, this word is, these words are used all over the Bible. Here's some examples. Isaiah 1, the word is translated like this. How tragic is the downfall of this city? Or in 2 Samuel, how the mighty have fallen. It's a lament. It's also a key word In the book of Lamentations, it's used all over. It is the first word in the book of Lamentations. It's the first word of chapter 1, it's the first word of chapter 2, and it's the first word of chapter 4. Ayeha, ayeha, ayeha. And the message uh, translation translates it like this. Oh, oh, oh. Or as I've tried to say it several times in this series, oh no, oh no, oh no. That's what God is saying. He's lamenting. So ayeha is an exclamation of lament or desperation, and it's normally uttered in contexts of mourning as exclamations of lament over a deceased person. In their context, that's where this would be used. And so ayeha is not God yelling at humans. That's not what is being said here. Instead, it's, he's pictured, God is pictured as someone who's leading a funeral. That he's crying out in lament over a loss or a death that this world that he's created with so much care and so much hope has now been squandered. And these humans who were lifted to such an elevated status and there's so much potential for them to reign and rule on his behalf are now going to become creatures who are creatures of chaos. Something has died, died. And God is lamenting it. And you know, as I was preparing this week and thinking about that storyline or that story arc, it reminded me so much of uh, the stories that I've heard of people who have lost friends or family members to addiction. It's the same narrative arc. If you ever talk to someone who has had this happen, they'll say something like, oh, I had this friend or family member, and they'll say all the beautiful things about them. They were such a good friend, a good partner. You know, they were my kid. They had so much potential. They were such a good artist, whatever it was, but they've been lost to the darkness. And I've sometimes been hurt, but I'm also lamenting and losing this dream, this relationship, the hopes that I had for me and for them. That's exactly what God is doing here. He's crying out, Ayeha. It's the same story. A small aside here. Um, I think that uh, lament is something, again, in evangelical kind of like subculture that is really hard to find a place for. And um, 
it's also something at this time of the year that's very hard to do. And, I, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it. But I know there are people here who are lamenting. And um, one of the things this passage says to us, I don't want to skip over it, is that if you're lamenting for whatever reason, these two things are true. They're here in bold statements at the beginning of the story of the Bible, is that God is not a God who is distant. He is a God who comes. And God is not uh, one who walks away from you in lament, but he joins you. In fact, he's the first person in the story to cry out, Ayeha. And so whoever you are, wherever you are, you're not alone if you are someone who's lamenting, especially at this time of the year. So God asks the human, he says, Ayeha, where are you? And then he follows that up with three more questions. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what is this that you have done? Now, this exchange, uh, which Gareth, Gareth preached through, is quite an odd one, in my opinion. Because if you know anything about Yahweh Elohim, one of the things you might know is that he kind of knows everything. You know, he uh, knows what's going on. So these questions don't really make a lot of sense, in my opinion. Um, but what, as I was doing research, I took this class from the Bible Project, which was great. And uh, the, one of the people in the class shared a story that, that really uh, helped me understand what's going on here. So I'm going to share it with you. It's his story. He said he's a parent. And he, he was in the phase with his son where his son was flushing everything down the toilet. We've all been there. Okay, we don't need to laugh at this kid. Um, but they would, it would induce these moments of panic for them. So they'd be like cooking dinner. And he'd be like, I need to check the recipe. And then he'd be like, where's my phone? And then he'd hear the toilet flush, and then he'd be like, oh, oh, see, some of you have lived through this, I can, I can see. Okay? So they rush into the bathroom, their son is like standing there at the toilet, just watching it swirl, and he'd be like, did you flush my phone down the toilet? And the son would be like, no. <laughs> and of course, they'd look in the toilet, and his phone is in there at the bottom, and he'd pull it out. And he realized, he'd say like, did you flush my phone down the toilet? And he realized... Uh, that what was going on, like, the, the consequences were happening either way. The phone had been in the toilet. So it either doesn't work or it's a toilet phone. You're not going to use a toilet phone <laughs> at this point in time. But the response of the child really would determine the consequences on their relationship. So if the parent pulls the phone out of the toilet and he's like, why is my phone in the toilet? And the kid's like, well, if you care about your phone so much, why don't you take better care of it, you know? Or why don't we make, why do you make this toilet so flushable and inviting for me, right? If, if that's the, the, te- the tone and the tenure of the kid, then, then that's going to have consequences. And the parents are going to be, the parent and the child, they're going to be at odds with one another. I don't want to know, know about your house, but there will also be consequences to that kind of attitude. But if the parent came into the bathroom and he said to the kid, he pulls the phone out of the toilet and he goes, Ayeha, my iPhone, Right? <laughs> Um, it has to be an iPhone. If it's an Android phone, he'd be like, yeah, whatever, it belongs in the, gar- in the toilet. Let's just leave it in there, am I right? You know who you are if you're in here, okay? So he's like, oh, yeah, my iPhone. And the kid runs up and grabs and starts crying with the dad and says, oh, dad, I'm so sorry. I, I, don't, I didn't mean to flush, I didn't mean to hurt you. I don't know why I flush things down the toilet. I, you know, I'm a sinful man, or whatever. Uh, the child is, is uh, quite mature in this scenario, right? But it's, it's a completely opposite experience for the parent and the child. The consequences are still there. It's still a toilet phone, regardless. But the father and the son may actually be closer than they were before. Because they have now not just been close in good times, but they've been close in times of lament. 
They have lamented together over toilet foam. And they now are closer than they were before. And I think something very similar is happening here. You know, whether God knows what's going on or, isn't, or not is not the point, right? Although it's not hard to figure out. You show up often, and these people come and hang out with you, and then you show up this time, they're hiding behind trees, they've got these leaves all over. Like, you don't need to call Nancy Drew to figure out what's happened in this scenario. A failure has happened, the phone is in the toilet, okay? The question is, what will happen between God and the people? And he's questioning them not to find out what happened, but in order to repair the relationship for an opportunity to repair. In the language of the Bible, to confess and repent. We ate the fruit. We're so sorry. You told us not to, and we see now that your heart is broken. We see you crying out, Ayeha. And the rabbis throughout history have speculated that if the people would have just confessed and repented, then God would have forgiven And there wouldn't be all this poem of all these consequences and curses. And the reason they say this is because this is the nature of this God. Let me just give you a few examples. Second Chronicles 7, it says this, And my people who bear my name, if they humble themselves, if they pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. It's this beautiful picture of putting things back right. If we would just humble ourselves and cry out. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the heart of God. He longs to forgive. And for us, this one's really helpful. Matthew 18, this is Jesus speaking. He says, truly I tell you, unless you turn, unless you turn and become like little children, unless you become like that child standing in front of the toilet, hugging his father's leg, unless you turn and become like that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who humbles himself like this child that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yahweh Elohim, who who is this character? Who is this God? He is one who longs to forgive. He longs to forgive us. And this this is really important for us because Genesis 2 and 3 is not just trying to give us the start of the story of the Bible, which it totally is. It's also trying to give us the roadmap for what happens when we fail at the trees of our lives. Because it's, it's like this. God says to us how to be human. He gives us the roadmap for how to be human, that you are a royal priest. And he says, live into that. And the best scenario would be for us to just listen to God, to do what he says. That's what the Bible calls wisdom. But we're all going to come to trees in our lives where we're going to fail. We're going to partner with the snake. His voice is just going to be too loud. And so the question is, what do we do? And the Bible here is inviting us to see that when we fail, that God is right there. And he is lamenting over what has happened. And there's an invitation to join him in lament, to see the world from his perspective, to see how our sin breaks our relationship with God, how it breaks our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our world, how it breaks our relationship with each other, and how those those consequences just spiral completely out of control. We are to see God lamenting and join him in lament. And when we hear his voice calling out to us, Come out of hiding. We are to confess and repent, or as it says, be honest, to turn, to humble ourselves, and ask him for mercy. Which isn't to say that there won't be consequences. The phone may be in the toilet. There are always consequences to us partnering with the snake. When we let him off the leash and just run around, his footprints will just be everywhere. When we feed the superorganism of sin, it is going to grow in our world. But God is gracious, he is compassionate, he longs to forgive us. And so he wants us to turn back to him and receive his invitation to become human once again. To not partner with the dark forces in the world, but to partner with him to continue to be human. 
to learn how to be human and unleash not chaos, but order and beauty and shalom. And very sadly for us and for the humans in Genesis 3, that's often not what we do and it's not what they do. Instead of receiving God's offer to turn, what they do is they blame shift. The man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and eventually they end up blaming God. And so what's God's response? It's this poem that we've been looking at the last three weeks. God says, look, if you're not willing to hear how I see the world, if you're not willing to lament with me over what's happened, then I'm going to crank up the consequences. And the hope there is not, he's not just dunking on us. He's not just trying to hurt us. He's trying to say, I, I want you to see that it's dark. I want you to see what happens. And so he's turning up the consequences. And the whole goal there is that we will eventually turn. That's what God longs for us to do because he is a God who wants to forgive. And that brings us to the final passage of Genesis 3. So he has this poem that we've been looking at for the last three weeks of all these curses and consequences. And then it says, Yahweh Elohim made clothing for skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. That the nakedness of humans, which is awkwardly mentioned quite often in this passage, and originally wasn't a problem, it has now become a problem. And the humans need to be covered. And their covering comes at a cost. The animal life, which was part of God's good creation, now must be taken in order to hide the shame of the humans. This is again what Tim Mackey says. He says, The provision of garments for the humans is portrayed as an act of divine generosity in the midst of judgment. Who is Yahweh Elohim? He is a God of mercy, deep mercy, and he is a God of judgment. He is both. We don't have to choose one side. He continues, Now that the humans have made the irreversible decision, God accommodates their non-ideal situation and provides them with a gift. Who is Yahweh Elohim? He is a God who accommodates to continue to work with humanity to accomplish his plan. He gives a gift, which in the language of the Bible is grace. He gives a grace that comes at the cost of a life. And this theme, of course, will continue to carry through the rest of the story. Verse 22, Yahweh Elohim said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. Here we need to remind ourselves very briefly of of the geography of the uh, garden, which is, I know you are all hoping that that's what I would talk about this morning. So here we go. Uh, So again, God makes this garden at the top of a mountain, and he puts at the center of it, he brings the humans there, and at the center there are two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, or we'll just call it wisdom. Now, both of these things are good things. Life, in the Bible, a good thing. Wisdom, a good thing. But God's plan is something like this. The tree of life, I think, is at the center, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil is right beside it. And what God says to the people is, you are to go around that tree. Don't eat from the tree of wisdom. You trust me for wisdom. You go around it, and you take from the tree of life. Like this life, this eternal life that we call it, or the life that's participating in in the triune God, has always been part of the plan. God wants to give that to us. But the way that we get it is by listening to him. As the Bible says, the fear of the knowledge of God, or fear of God, is the beginning of all wisdom, which leads to life. And so, we are supposed to go around that tree in order to get to the tree at the center, the tree of life, and take it. But now that the humans have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree of life, which was a blessing, which was a gift, now becomes a threat. Because if the humans are not aligned with God, they are aligned with the chaos creature, if they live forever, they will just wreak havoc everywhere. 
And so God says, this gift that I have given you now becomes a threat, and I have to kick you out of the garden in order that they don't take it and eat it together so that they don't become chaos monsters. Verse 23, so Yahweh Elohim sent the human away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim, cherubim at the flaming, and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard it, the way to the tree of life. And we end the story here with a complete inversion of where we started. That the humans who were made to dwell with God in the garden, which is a place of blessing, have now been kicked out. They're outside amidst the cursed ground. And the God who longs to bless who longs to bless not only the humans, but to bless the whole world, has now found himself cursing, giving consequences, and exiling the humans. The humans who were supposed to be priests to guard this garden now find themselves outside of the garden, and there need to be new priests, these spiritual beings who come and guard the garden and keep the the humans out. And the humans who are made for life, to take from the tree of life and eat, are now going to experience death. It's a complete inversion of the whole story. And thus ends Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and again, I, I want to point out, as we have in the uh, graphics for our series, it is not trying to give us a Hubble telescope picture of our world. It's not trying to tell us how many days it took for the world to be created. It's giving us something different and much more important. A sad but very true story that I think maps onto our world the through lines and the storylines and the themes to make sense of the rest of the story of the Bible, but also to make sense of our lives. Why is the world the way it is? What happens when we choose not to partner with God, but with the chaos monster? And so it gives us the stories for our lives, and it also gives us a story for the Bible and invites us to keep reading, which is what we're invited to do. What will God do? And if you keep reading, what you'll see is the same God who is in there in Genesis 2 and 3 continue to show up. He continues to come to people. He comes again and again, generation after generation, and he laments the darkness in our world, the sin and its consequences. And he keeps showing up to offer his hand of partnership to people. Just as he took these humans and said, you are my representatives, he will take people again and again from the story and he'll say, you are my partners and I want to work with you in order to be royal priests once again. I'll lift you to that status if you turn and then you can bless the world. We'll bless the world through you. And there are ups and downs in the storyline. There are times when people recognize the darkness and they cry out and God comes and he laments with them and he saves them and he reintroduces himself to them. And then he partners with them. And there are these really beautiful moments where that happens, but then there are also moments of really supreme darkness. It's up and down. And it just seems like if you read the story that humans are doomed to fail. But the prophets pick up on the storyline as Keith and Tina read in our Advent reading. Isaiah is one of those people. And they announce that one day a new human will come. A chosen one who will be a faithful partner for Yahweh Elohim. And so what the gospel authors are trying to tell us, each of them in their own way, is that God has heard the cries of his people and that he has come in this new human, Jesus of Nazareth. He's come to lament sin and its consequences among us and he's come to reintroduce us to God. It's the same God, actually. Same God of of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, but we've put mud on him. Put mud on his name. We've gotten him wrong. And so Jesus comes and he says, this is who God is, that God always looks like Jesus. And in his death, Jesus shows us that God is both the God of justice, but also the God 
of mercy. And he invites us to see what the, concept, the true consequences of, are of, of us partnering with the darkness. It's death. But in his resurrection and in his life, he also proclaims that he is one over the snake. That the snake may have bitten him, but he has crushed its head, as it says in Genesis 1. And it's an invitation for us to new life, to partnership with him once again. To not be agents of chaos, but to, to learn how to become royal priests once again under King Jesus. And this is the great hope of Christmas. That God is not distant, but he is very close. He's leaning in, he's speaking, and he's lamenting with us. And he's just waiting He's waiting for us to cry out, to turn away from the snake, to turn away from darkness in our lives, in our world, and receive Jesus' invitation to be remade into new humans. People who look like Jesus, royal priests who use their elevated status not to demean or to dehumanize or to destroy, but to partner with God, to learn to partner with one another, that we might see God work through us. In the language of the New Testament, it says the invitation is to become conformed to the image of Jesus, to become like him, that we might have God shining in us so that the world that's living in darkness might see his light. And so as we close this series and as we close this time together, I can't think of a better way to do it than to invite you to respond, to come together to see a God who is not distant, but a God who is close, who a God who wants to be even with us right now, of a God who has tasted death and knows what it is to lament. That's what happens when we come here and we, set, when we take communion together, that this is a God who, who dies, who's not far from us in those moments of darkness in our life, and a God who is just waiting for us, waiting for us to turn, to confess, to humble ourselves, to repent, and to receive his invitation to new life. So that's what we're going to do now as we respond and as we close this series. I invite you to respond, to come to the table, to take communion with us, to go pray with folks at the back. Maybe there's things we need to confess and repent. In 1 John, uh, in 1 John it says that we confess these things to one another in order that the snake will not long, no longer have a hold on us. And we invite you to give generously, to say that the snake doesn't have a hold on our wallets. And we invite you to sing along. Sing for one another. Sing for those stuck in darkness and sing to remind ourselves that God has overcome. Let's pray to close. God, uh, I'm, I'm still in awe of how much is packed into these few chapters. And uh, as we end with this very sad ending of uh, what it means to be human, what it means to dwell here, we also, uh, and we lament with you those things, we also look forward to Jesus who has come, who gives us hope, and remind us that you are near, that you lament with us, that you call out to us, that you invite us to turn and receive your invitation of new life. So wherever that um, story meets us and intersects with ours today, I pray that you would call us. You call us out. You call us to one another and call us to you to respond in humbleness, respond in turning, respond in love. And so we give you this time and we just ask that you would be present with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.